This Sunday and next Sunday, God willing, I'll be dealing with the subject, the secret of endurance or the secret of perseverance. Dealing with the doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. You say, are you a reformed church? No, but I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Hebrews chapter 10, we read from Hebrews 11. Let's get a little running start. Hebrews 10, verse 32, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me, the writer says. We don't know who the writer was, may have been Paul, but whoever he was, he said, ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. It may seem like a long time since Jesus went back to heaven, but it's just a little while. He that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. I'll never forget being involved in sports in high school. And my late twin brother, my niece here today, one of his daughters, younger daughters, and uh, Bill and I weren't good at much in athletics, but we had a good set of lungs, and we could run cross-country. He was a better runner than I was. In fact, just a couple of years before he was tragically taken, uh, he ran a 5K race in uh, his county, and he won his division. He, so he called himself the fastest old man in the county. So we could run. And I'll never forget, you didn't have starting blocks for cross-country races. Nobody did that, but that was just for sprints. But we'd see other guys line up at that kind of curved starting line. And they'd take off like they were in a starting block. They'd blitz on down that trail path or whatever like jackrabbits by the time they got two or three miles down to what we always called heartbreak hill they'd faded people were passing them like they were standing still and we we had an expression for those guys morning glories morning glories sadly a lot of professing christians our morning glories. Remember how Paul wrote the Galatians? And he addressed them in that epistle and he said, for a while you, you ran well, just like those guys that I ran with. But then something happened. You ran out of gas. You slacked up. You quit trying. Some who do that are actually for a time, listen carefully, for a time articulate spoke 
spokespersons for Christ, but then they deny the faith, and they become apostates. And we've had an epidemic of that over the last three or four years, maybe five or six. We've had an epidemic of high-profile people just coming out saying, I don't believe in Christianity anymore. Probably the most shocking one was in 2019 when Josh Harris, lead pastor of the flagship church of the Sovereign Grace Ministries, and a best-selling author of that book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, he shocked the evangelical world when he announced he was leaving his wife of more than 20 years, and then just a short time later he said, I'm leaving Christianity. One month later, Marty Sampson, worship leader and well-known songwriter of Hillsong, announced, I'm genuinely, genuinely losing my faith. A few years earlier than that, Bart Campolo, the son of the famous evangelical preacher Tony Campolo, left the faith of his dad, and that wasn't enough. He became a poster child for atheists. And I could go on and on. This is just the tip of the iceberg. High-profile leaders like Abraham Piper, John Piper's son. And John Piper, of course, started Desiring God Ministries. So one of the best writers they ever had was Paul Maxwell. He left the faith. Kevin Max of the Christian pop group DC Talk many others. So I ask you a question. How do we account for these guys? I'm sure there's some ladies too. How could they preach and write so persuasively and then renounce it all with impunity? Were they ever truly born again? Are they still saved even though they don't want to be? I hope to answer those questions in the course of this message today and next Sunday. So I hope I have your attention. In this 11th chapter of Hebrews, the great hall of faith chapter of the Bible, no less than 16 Old Testament worthies are actually named, while many more are alluded to in a general way in the passage we read at the beginning of the service. Let me see uh, how you do here. Which Old Testament character has more verses devoted to him? Well, don't look at your Bible. Which Old Testament character has more verses devoted to him in this chapter than any other? How many think it's Abraham? All right. How many of you think it's Moses? You're right. The Moses habit. More verses are devoted to Moses than any other character in Hebrews chapter 11. Moses was not perfect, but he was faithful. He was faithful in all his house. He finished strong at 120 years of age. I mentioned that, I think, in my prayer. His natural, his vision was not dim. His natural force was not abated, though he was 120. And the outstanding quality of Moses cited here is his endurance, or the word could be perseverance there in verse 27. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. And his endurance proved the genuine nature of his faith. And so it is in the life of Moses especially that we see that God gave him the faith to see him who is invisible. He had the spiritual vision 
necessary to persevere against some unbelievably daunting forces. The conclusion that the writer to the Hebrews reaches in chapter 12, coming right after the great Hall of Faith chapter is, and please don't miss this, if Moses and these other heroes of faith could do it, so can we. So can you. Beloved, the road to heaven is literally strewed with casualties, with dropouts, with morning glories, with stony soil converts. The Apostle Paul had his Demas who went back to the world, forsook Paul and forsook Christ because he loved the present world. He had his Hymenaeuses and Alexanders who made shipwreck of their faith. John had his Diotrephes. Jesus had his Judas. Don't miss this. Judas preached. Judas worked miracles. Judas cast out demons. Judas blended in with the eleven. No one suspected him when Jesus announced, One of you shall betray me. And yet he did betray his Lord, and he exposed himself as the apostate, the devil that he was all along. Beloved, it's time for a wake-up call. It's time for a thorough, impartial, ruthless self-examination. Could I do that? Do I have the faith of God's elect? Do I have the faith that endures? Or could I be one of those casualties strewn on the road to heaven? Two important conclusions we need to have or come to if we would have a faith like Moses that endures. I'll deal with one of them today, God willing, the next one, the second one next week. The one I want to deal with today is simply this. Endurance or perseverance is evidence of salvation. Would you look at the passage that I read just a little while ago, one of the verses there, verse, or two verses, verses 38 and 39. Quoting from Habakkuk, the writer to the Hebrews says this, Now the just shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2.4, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But then he says, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now, who is the writer talking to? Very important that we understand that. A lot of people have real foggy thinking about the book of Hebrews. He is writing primarily to Hebrew believers who were in danger of drawing back and renouncing their faith in Christ. Now, you've got to understand their situation. They had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, and that was a big deal. But now they were undergoing intense persecution and deprivation for their faith. We think the approximate year of, this, of the writing of this letter was the year 65 A.D., And within five years, their beloved holy city, Jerusalem, would fall to the Roman hordes under Titus. Their beautiful temple, the temple of Herod the Great, would be razed to the ground. And to make matters worse, Christ had not returned in His promised perusa to deliver them. They were discouraged, many of them. And so this writer gives this epistle for two purposes. Please don't miss this. He gives it as both a warning 
and an encouragement. The writer to the Hebrews will find out who he was in heaven. But he is saying basically this, Jesus is worth it, don't quit. And that's what I tell you today. Jesus is worth it, don't give up the faith. There were warnings directed toward those who may have thought that they were saved, but they didn't have the faith that would pass the test. But then there were encouragements for those who had been willing to sacrifice and suffer, but it didn't look like they were, it was getting them anywhere. And so even if you have not in a fit of despondency renounced your faith in Christ like Josh Harris and Marty Sampson and Bart Campolo, you need the message you're hearing today. We all need warnings and encouragements to persevere in our faith in Christ. It was said of the early church in Galilee and Samaria, in Judea, they were walking in the fear of God and in the comfort, the paraclesis of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, they were multiplied. Beloved, we often use the term eternal security. I have no problem with that. I rejoice in that, but let me just go on record saying eternal security is not carnal security. There are many people in churches just like this, fundamental independent Baptist churches in America who have gone to Sunday school every Sunday, that's the way they grew up. They won awards for perfect attendance, for memorizing verses, they know all the lingo, they can walk the walk, and they probably, or, or they, they, they can talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk, and probably they half-jokingly refer to themselves as carnal Christians. And I'm saying those people, and I hope you're not one, but if you are, you need some shock treatment today. I hope the book of Hebrews will just pour gasoline in your open wound. Salvation here is viewed as a process. Sometimes the New Testament speaks of salvation as something accomplished in the past. There are verses like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, God has quickened us together with Christ. It's, it's an accomplished fact. It's past. But then frequently salvation is referred to in the present or ongoing sense, as in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, by which, referring to the gospel, also ye are being saved. That's the literal meaning of the verb there. Then there are many verses that speak of a future salvation. For example, Romans chapter 5, verse 9, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So we have verses that talk about past tense salvation, present ongoing salvation, future salvation. It is scriptural to say, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I shall be saved. But it is with the present tense, the ongoing sense of salvation, that the writer to the Hebrews is concerned. He's assuming for the most part that his readers have been justified, but he makes allowance for the fact that some among them may not have the faith of God's elect. Justification is instantaneous. It's absurd to say, I am becoming or being justified. It's as absurd as saying, I am becoming guilty. You either are or you're not. Now, what is justification? Let's get it straight in our minds. 
Justification is the act of God. It's an act God does, not you. Justification is the act whereby God declares righteous the sinner who believes on His Son. It accords Him, credits Him the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only perfect man who ever lived on this earth. It is a legal term. It is a forensic term. Now the jury in a court case may deliberate for a time, but there's a definite moment when the verdict is rendered. And for justification, the verdict is not guilty. But it's even more than that. It's not only not guilty, it's being declared positively righteous. Jesus gave a parable in Luke chapter 18 about two men. I've talked about this parable often. Whenever I witness to people, this is kind of my go-to presentation. You're safe when you go by what the Bible says. There are some other approaches, some other plans, some other uh, programs for soul winning, but I like to stick with the Bible. In Luke chapter 18, this publican went up to the temple at the same time as the religious man, the Pharisee, to pray. Won't deal with how the Pharisee thought he was praying. We've talked about that other times. But this publican went into the temple as far as he could get from the, from the Pharisee, or the Pharisee was as far as he could get from the publican, because the publican could go into the same part of the temple that the Pharisee could. And he smote upon his breast, and he bowed his head, and he said this, God be merciful, God be propitiated to me, and in the Greek it's the definite article, the sinner. He wasn't concerned with how he stacked up with a Pharisee or anybody else. He saw himself as God saw him. He said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. God be propitiated because of the blood. That's what that word means in the Greek, merciful. It refers to the mercy seat, the golden lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And a few verses later, <laughs> I love this. A few verses later, Jesus said, I tell you, that man, not the religious man, the sinner man, the man on the lowest rung of the totem pole, the man nobody would associate with, so he was thrown in with harlots. Publicans and sinners were thrown together. That was the man who went home to his house justified, declared righteous. He hadn't done anything. Hadn't been baptized yet, hadn't offered a sacrifice yet to demonstrate, hadn't done anything, but he was declared righteous solely on the basis of his faith in the shed blood of the one God had appointed to be a substitute. A notorious sinner became suddenly righteous in God's sight. He passed from death unto life. Could I ask you before we go any further, has that happened to you? Do you know it? You say, no, I'm not sure it has, Pastor. What do I need to do? Well, it's already been done. The only thing you can do is receive it. Confess yourself a sinner. Receive the mercy and forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ who offered His blood for you, who died for your sins 2,000 years ago. And God will justify you. It's instantaneous. It's not a process. You don't work it up. You don't earn it. 
But that leads us to the second thing that we need to understand. That is that sanctification is progressive. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the process whereby a believing sinner is made practically holy and righteous. Practically holy, righteous. It is the present tense of salvation. It is the process whereby you and I are being saved from the power of sin, even though we still have a sin nature. And this wonderful work is basically accomplished in two ways, as we understand the Old the New Testament, I'm sorry, and, and I'm going to go fast this morning, so just jot down some references. I won't be able to have you turn and look at a lot of them, uh, but I'll refer to them or I'll quote portions of them, and I'll mention the reference very specifically. I want you to see these verses. Don't take Bob Radenberg's word for it, but if God said it, be like the Berean Christians, go home and see if the things I said were so. How are we sanctified? Number one, and this is in order, this is priority as well as the order in which I'm approaching them today, through the Word of God. Jesus said in His high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 17, He prayed to His Father for His disciples. And one of the things He asked for, He said, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. A lady once came to her pastor and she said, and this maybe fits somebody here today, I don't know. She said, you know, I read my Bible every day, preacher. I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I know I need to. I know the Bible is, is my meat and drink, and, and it's, it, it's what I need to immerse myself in. She said, but I don't, I, I don't absorb anything. I fear that it's not doing me much good. I love the answer her pastor gave her. He said to this dear lady, he said, well, you know, a sieve doesn't absorb very much either, but the water keeps it clean. And Jesus told his disciples in John 15, verse 3, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Psalm 119, verse 9, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. When young men come to me, and this often happens because of the bombardments of the world and because of their own fallen nature, and they say, Pastor, how can I live a clean, pure life? How can I have a pure thought life? I take them to that verse, and I counsel them to take megadoses of the Word of God and quote it back to the devil in the hour of their temptation. Many men here today have memorized Romans chapter 6. I've given away free books to incentivize you to do that. If you want some ammunition against the devil when he tempts you, memorize Romans 6 and master those principles. Beloved, we can't be cavalier about this. I spoke to a young man who's about to become a teenager just recently, and I said to him, what's your strategy for being pure as you enter your teenage years? And then I told him, it's not going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen by osmosis. You better be intentional about this. And we had a great talk. We had a great talk. We have got to fight back against the devil and our own fallen natures with the sword of the Spirit. Because the devil has an ally inside of us, and that is our sinful nature. But I'm here to tell you, God has an ally inside of us too. If you're a Christian, He has the Holy Spirit. And that brings me to the second way we're 
means of our sanctification, that is through the Spirit. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of, the word, the preposition translated of, in our King James literally means by. Sanctification by the Spirit and belief of the truth. That's Second Thessalonians 2, 13. Peter says something very similar in his first epistle. Let me just put it this way. Nobody gets justified who doesn't get sanctified. In fact, Paul said that in Romans chapter 8. He that is sanctified is justified. Aren't you glad that God finishes every job He starts? Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. That means will finish, will accomplish it under the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 6. There are no unfinished portraits in God's gallery. There are no amputated limbs in the body of Jesus Christ. Everything is whole and complete and permanent. The Holy Spirit is given to us to redeem us fully, spirit, soul, and body. And the Spirit is the earnest that God is going to finish what He started. The faith of a justified man will endure. That's the clear meaning of 1038. Now the just shall live by faith, but if a man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Just shall live by faith was the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. It was the truth that arrested a monk by the name of Martin Luther, and he became a different man. Not perfect. He became rabidly anti-Semitic. God's forgiven him for that. He shouldn't have been. But Martin Luther was changed. And the just man is the justified man who has been declared righteous by his faith. And his life overall, he'll have lapses. Yes, he'll backslide sometimes in varying degrees. But overall, his life will be characterized by faith. We are blessed to be New Testament saints who right now, while I'm speaking to you, have a full-time advocate at the right hand of the Father who's pleading for us, just as He did for Peter, that our faith fail not. He's not praying for us so that our faith is not needed. No, He's praying for us that our faith will not fail. Beloved, let's not hesitate to say it for fear we're being going to be uh, for fear we might be accused of teaching work salvation. The righteous man will put his trust in God, and he will live in that trust. The Bible does not say here the just should live by his faith. It says he shall live by his faith. The Bible teaches not only the preservation of the saints, but the perseverance of the saints. And once we believe that and accept that, we won't have to try to explain away other scriptures. And there I've heard some far-fetched interpretations. Verses like Matthew 10, verse 22, which is also found in Matthew 24, verse 13, and Mark 13, 13, as far as the essence of that verse is concerned, Jesus said in the great Olivet Discourse, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Boy, I've heard some strange ones on that. From people who believe once saved, always saved. They're not Arminians. The standard interpretation of that verse is he that survives to the end of the tribulation will be saved physically by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Could I beg to differ? 
Isn't that a redundancy? Isn't that equivalent to saying if you survive, you'll be saved alive? I would urge you to rethink that. I like what Dr. Henry Morris, the great granddaddy creationist, said in his comment, in his study Bible on that verse. He said this, and I quote, The truly saved are those who endure whatever suffering and persecution the Lord allows to come their way without giving up their professed faith and denying their Lord. He hit the nail on the head. I think of Hebrews 3.14. Again, I'm going through some verses very quickly. Please jot them down. Hebrews 3.14. For if, uh, sorry, for we are made or have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence unto the end. Again, this is not saying that a man is saved by holding fast to the end. He's not saved by works. It is simply saying that those who hold their confidence in Christ until the end, are you listening, demonstrate that they were true believers in Christ from the beginning. Andrew Murray said it so well, our perseverance will be the seal of our being partakers of Christ. John 8, 31, these are the words of Christ. He said to those Jews which believed on Him, if ye continue, if ye persevere in My word, then are ye My disciples indeed. Does that mean they weren't saved until they had demonstrated over a lifetime that they were continuing? No, it's just you give evidence of it. You show forth that you are my disciples. And then there's another verse I do want you to see. I I didn't have time to have you turn to all of the ones I've mentioned. Would you turn to the little book of 1 John, the little letter that John wrote, one of three. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. I'm speaking of, and I'm talking about, and John is speaking of here, apostate teachers apostate teachers who were really anti-Christ, but they didn't show their true colors up front. And that's usually the case with false teachers. Notice what it says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. Stop. No doubt. Didn't say this is generally true, but there are some exceptions. Uh Uh-uh. It said, no doubt. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. That's a critical verse. Make sure you understand it. So let me be real blunt and apply that verse. What about Mr. Bart Ehrman, the famous professor over here at UNC Chapel Hill? who for a number of years has taught hundreds of students in his freshman class, crowded classes, he has to turn away people, that the Bible is full of contradictions and that it is dangerous. He's written several best-selling books. He's interviewed by the mainstream media that, oh, they love him because he hates Christ. Wait, you know the background of Bart Ehrman? He claims to have been converted in the Youth for Christ movement many years ago, which was a great movement. He received a diploma from Moody Bible Institute in Bible. He took his undergrad degree from Wheaton College, evangelical institution. 
He studied under the revered Greek scholar and Bible translator Bruce Metzger, who just died in 2007 at Princeton. That's the background of Bart Ehrman. Here's the simple explanation for Bart Ehrman. He went out from us because he was not of us. He's no different from Judas, the first New Testament apostate who preached the gospel, who heard Christ's teaching, who gave at least mental assent to it, who performed miracles, but he still turned out to be an apostate. And Bart Ehrman isn't in a class all by himself. There are many others. There's the late Chuck Templeton who almost turned Billy Graham aside. There's still the Templeton Awards or prizes given. That's named for Chuck Templeton. There's A.W. Tozer's son who doesn't believe in the faith of his dad at all. Well, what about Marty Sampson and Josh Harris and Paul Maxwell and Bart Campolo? They were never of us. They never belonged to Christ. Jesus said, and I could hear Brother uh, Gustavo saying this through the translation a little bit today. I didn't hear much, Kimberly, but I heard this much. He quoted from John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and my sheep follow me, and a stranger will they not follow. True believers don't apostatize. True believers don't renounce their faith. They endure. They persevere. They give evidence of the fact that their faith is not spurious, but it's the true faith of God's elect. And failure to understand this has caused all strange interpretations. There are some people who say, I believe in eternal security, but I believe you can cease to believe. Honest, sincere people believe that. So-called Baptists believe that. And I want to speak a word of encouragement to you. I don't want it to be all expose, polemic today. Maybe you have a loved one in this category. At one time they profess faith in Christ, but they've gone an entirely different direction. They don't believe the faith that they once espoused. Please listen. I want to be a help and encouragement. Do not despair of their salvation. Though they have renounced the faith, that does not necessarily mean that they are reprobate. I've known preachers that have just given up on their children, but they eventually came to Christ and they thought they'd send away their dear grace. If you have a child like that, pray for them. Fast for them. Enlist others to pray and fast. It's a hard case, but the hard cases are those that we will not come forth but by prayer and fasting, Jesus said. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. But the great evangelist of the 19th century, probably the greatest evangelist, Dwight L. Moody, had three children, and one of his two sons, Will, who eventually wrote his father's biography, for a time went away from Christ and renounced the faith. Moody was in England with missions, revival missions, evangelistic missions. And he received a a letter from Will, and it broke his heart. And in that letter, Will revealed that he loved his dad, but he did not love his dad's Bible. He did not believe the gospel. He did not believe the Bible. He was about to enroll at Yale University as an unbeliever. The great evangelist with a broken heart 
set out to win his son. He had won hundreds of thousands of others, but the one on his heart the most was his son. He refused to give up on that boy. He wrote him letters when he was away from town. He prayed for him daily. As soon as he got back to Massachusetts, he would get together with his son. One day he got another letter. And in that letter, Will said, Dad, I'm coming back to Christ. I'm coming back to the faith. And he worked closely with his father for the last 10 years of D.L. Moody's ministry in the work of Mount Vernon School. Don't give up on your wayward children. You do not know down in the human heart crushed by the tempter feelings lie buried that grace can restore. You don't know. Pray. But it's a desperate case. Get others to pray with you. The faith of a justified man will endure. For the time we have remaining, and yes, it's after 12. Just in case you're wondering, it is four after. And I've got four more points to cover. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We'll be out before long. Faith will endure. It will endure sound doctrine. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. This is Paul's swan song. He's saying from his heart to his protege, his son in the faith, Timothy, it's very touching. He talks about others who've apostatized. And he's worried that Timothy might. And he says in verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, their own evil desires, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their uh, their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I don't know if you've noticed it lately, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to find a church that teaches the whole counsel of God and is not concerned primarily with attracting people. It's hard to find a church like that. Pastors, by and large, are preaching what ears are itching for. Yet the only license and the only warrant I have is to preach sound doctrine and the whole counsel of God. If you have the faith of God's elect, you're not only going to be able to endure sound doctrine, you will relish it. You will look for a church, if you are visiting today, you'll look for a church with a man of God that spends hours upon hours digging in the Word and feeding his flock, getting it right, and then getting it across. So I ask you this morning, and I'm not trying to be a smart aleck, what's your tolerance level for sound doctrine? What's your threshold for that? Faith of God's elect will endure sound doctrine. It will endure afflictions and chastening. The faith of a justified man will endure afflictions and chastening. Just jot down 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. We read the two verses before that. Notice what he says to Timothy in verse 5. But watch thou in all things endure afflictions. 
Do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. The word in the Greek, uh, afflictions there, is the same word found in, in chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul told Timothy, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The godly man, the justified man, is going to have his afflictions and trials, and through them God wants to toughen him and make him strong. I'm worried for the state of evangelical Christianity. I look around and I see a lot of softies. I see a lot of, lot of couch potatoes. I see a lot of pampered believers. They've got to have all the amenities or they're going to check out of there. The faith of a justified man will endure afflictions and chastening. Thirdly, it will endure persecution. These Hebrew believers that I talked about here, the ones to whom the writer uh, was addressing his epistle, they were experiencing dire persecution. Whoever this anonymous writer was, and we get to heaven, we're going to find out. He catalogs the kind of persecutions that they've been enduring there in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. He talks about the that they were being laughed at. They were being ridiculed. He said, you had compassion of me and my bonds. You took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. In verse 32, he refers to the fact that they endured a great fight of afflictions. In verse 33, he said, you were made a gazing stock. Who does that remind you of? What about Jesus on the cross who was publicly exposed to cruel taunts and gawking eyes as he hanged there naked and bleeding. Common modesty can't depict how awful it was. You know what the worst suffering in the world is? It's when you can't suffer in private. The whole world knows, and their gawking eyes and aspersions just throw gasoline on the fire. I think of the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. By the way, Jesus said, if you don't understand that parable, you're not going to understand any of the others. We went through all the parables recently, but that's the key. If you don't understand the parable of the sower, you're not going to get anything else. And one of the kinds of soil upon which the seed fell was the stony soil. And Jesus described those here as of those who have no root in themselves. Are you listening? But they endure but for a time. Ah, that ought to get our attention. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. Did they get saved? Uh Uh-uh. They just had an emotional response. In the verse leading up to that, they received the word with gladness. Oh, it was all smiles and bubbliness. And they came down the aisle, they were probably smacking their double bubble, and everybody was clapping and saying amen. But no, they never counted the cost. I'm convinced, beloved, we do not know what real persecution is in America. We're just beginning to get a a taste of it. And yet I see professors quitting on God and the local church for the least little inconvenience. (laughs) 
Listen, if the footmen tire you, if the infantry tires you, what will the horsemen, what will the cavalry do? We haven't seen anything yet. A little COVID pandemic and people don't come to church anymore. I'll sit home and watch it on my remote. I'll be a freelance Christian. <laughs> I'll watch what I want, but nobody's going to watch me. <laughs> Beloved, it's, it's time to get tough, Christian soldier. Maybe you're here today and you say, uh, I know I'm saved. I was there when it happened. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I, I signed the card. I got dunked in the baptistry. I heard the powers that be say, you're in. And doesn't the Bible say that we're saved by faith apart from works? Uh, preacher, don't judge me. Please listen carefully and I'm done. I'm not judging you. I'm asking you to judge yourself. By the criteria of the Word of God. I believe it was John Calvin that said it first, though it's been said in different ways by several since then, even Martin Luther. He said this, it is faith alone that saves. We believe that. But he went on to say this, but the faith that saves is never alone. It will give evidence in the life. Let's pray. Father, help each one to examine himself or herself today, whether they be in the faith. I pray that we will understand this truth. We will not water it down in our minds. Oh, how ingenious we are, and if the devil has anything to do with us, how ingenious we are at finding wiggle room for sin in our lives. We depend upon you, Spirit of God. You are the conveyor of truth. You are the convincer of truth. Please do your office work in hearts right now and in days to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.